0: Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez.
1: Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. You can learn more about me and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com or Gusto-Now.com. Let me thank my partner and sponsor, WorkProud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everyone wants to know they matter, that the work they do is meaningful and appreciated. WorkProud is a mobile platform built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. WorkProud empowers HR and business leaders to help create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their work and proud of their company. Learn more at WorkProud.com. With us today is Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is currently in private practice while also developing courses and podcasts for an educational company in China based on his recent books, The Power of Empathy, The Soulful Leader, and The Triumph of Diversity. His latest book expresses his heartbreak at the divisiveness and hate speech predominant in the United States, a cancer he stands to eradicate through his teachings. His book is called America Reunited. A Relational Solution to Bridging the Political, Social, and Personal Chasm Dividing Our Nation, which we'll be talking about in today's conversation. You joined today from Boston, Dr. Sarah McCauley. Welcome back for the fourth time to Working on Purpose.
2: Thank you, Elise. Good to see you.
1: It's great to see you. It's really great to see you. And as I say, you're, this is your fourth time. You are the only guest that I've had on my show four times. I think I've had somebody on twice and thrice, but never four.
2: Oh, well, I'm honored to be here again.
1: Yes, me too. And and before we get into situating the whole problem of extremism and hate speech, which is really what you're addressing in your book, I want to start with you, Dr. C., as we like to call each other. Um, this being your fourth time because you keep writing books, but this book that you've written this time is intensely personal and even a bigger reach for you to a larger audience because you were diagnosed with plasma myeloma cells recently, which means, as you say in this book, that you have cancer in your heart, which I find just completely ironic given that you've done so much work helping people work on their own hearts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How's it going? How are you feeling? Uh,
2: I'm feeling great. My numbers are down. I have a great treatment team here in Boston at Tufts Medical Center. So I- I'm doing very well. I'm very fortunate to uh, be in this area to, be, to uh, 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 obtain expert treatment. I-, I see one of the experts in the world in this AL amyloidosis, these toxic proteins that can locate in your heart. One of the reasons I included this story in the introduction to the book, Elise, is that I wanted to display to the reader how powerful emotions can be and how they distort perceptions. You know, this concept of confirmation bias, that what we, the outcome that we want to see, that we actually produce it in our minds, even though it may not be there. And for instance, when I first heard that I had cancer, these toxic proteins in my heart, I still right now, even when I say the word, I don't feel like I have it. So intellectually, there's one knowledge base and then on an emotional level, there's somewhat of a, a denial there as you and I were talking a little earlier before we came on air. But you know, nutritionists say that we are what we eat. What I say as a clinical psychologist, that we are what we perceive. And I think our perceptions have been so distorted recently in this country Uh, on both sides of the aisle, Democrats, Republicans, the the, the hateful speech, the sadistic actions, and it it really has demoralized Americans in a a great way.
1: Yes, I completely agree with that. And I appreciate what you say also early in your book is you, you talk about that it, as you were navigating your own cancer journey that you also saw that there was really, the United States was being confronted with its own cancer and its denial of, and its level of unrest in recent years and instead chooses to see America as the greatest nation without really engaging in objective analysis. I thought that was incredibly profoundly real and thoughtful and accurate.
2: You know, and I, and I would like to believe that it isn't true, but it is true, and we have to face up to it, that we, we have right now the greatest rates of prejudice that we've had in the last 30 years. Anti-Semitism, we know just in the last few weeks, is up. Racism has increased. Islamophobia is up. Uh, discrimination against people of different sexual orientation is up. Uh, and, and suicide, suicide is up dramatically in our country. So we're in trouble. America's in trouble, and we need to address it. We need to address it comprehensively.
1: Yeah, and what I also appreciate, I completely agree with that, by the way, and I'm so happy to have you on the show talking about the importance of this, and, and, and doing so in a way that I think is is reasonable and, and actionable for all of us. I really, I just, you know that I'm, I've been a fan of yours for years, and what you've now brought to the world, I think, is just so important and so timely. And when you, you were talking specifically about this notion uh, the societal disease that manifests from hateful speech and hateful actions, this vengeance and, and as you said, outright sadism, and you and you address the need to uh, to understand and influence those who feel disenfranchised disenfranchised and left behind. I think that's really important to talk about is that there is such an enormous portion of our population that does feel disenfranchised and left behind. Can you Let's speak be- it a little bit and help us understand just kind of the, the numbers you write in the book are phenomenal, just huge. Well, 40 million people at least, 40 million people are living below the poverty line,
2: 16 million children. And the suicide rates, and, and this is mainly in the Midwest and the South, but the suicide rates in the, in the, in the Midwest uh, its now been called, the mountain states are called the suicide belt because there's so many unemployed people. And if you combine unemployment, gun ownership, and, uh, and alcoholism or opiate addiction, you have high suicide rates. So it's, it's, it's a deep concern, a deep concern. And if people don't have employment, they're, they're very apt to listen to uh, distorted views on media outlets, radio and so forth, you know, and be convinced that because they're looking for an enemy Oftentimes, people, particularly people with sadistic cores, people that tend to project out their dissatisfaction rather than acknowledging it inwardly. They're they're blamers, they blame other people. So now they're being given a cause. The Democrats hate the Republicans, the Republicans hate the Democrats. And it goes back and forth needlessly because a lot of their dilemmas, especially that tendency to be sadistic, to be hurtful to others, has nothing to do with politics nothing to do with politics whatsoever. This is a, pers- a personality issue. You know, when, when we saw the uprising on April 6th in the Capitol, uh, January 6th, I'm sorry, in the Capitol, and we saw a man with a pole, you know, hitting a guard, that, that man hitting that guard, that had nothing to do with his political persuasions. Because I know many Republicans, I have Republican friends, I have Republican patients, who would never do that. In their wildest dream they would never pick up a pole that hits hit an innocent person that's a personality issue so i i think in the media we haven't talked about it that way we haven't talked about it as a psychological issue because that's what it is it's not a political issue
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and to that end one of the other things that i found fascinating about your writing at this time in this book is that you talk about how more and more americans have been adopting extreme views to the right or to the left and some of the very serious conflicts that you've already brought up that come to that. And to the point even, this extremism, is that when you I read this, I laughed, but I shouldn't have because I do, I've heard it all over the place. You said that, you know, couples whose uh, significant other doesn't agree with their political position, oftentimes are not really allowed to sleep in the same room with them. I mean, that's yeah. incredible.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I've been a, a practice and clinical psychologist, as you said in the introduction, for a long time. and. Never in, in in my 35 years of practicing have I had indications at, at times where people talk about politics in therapy. Mm. But it's so common now, and it's been so common for so long. It seems like a little less in the last few months, but it is. It, people have tuned in in ways that they never have before, and they're tuning into stations and outlets that may not necessarily be telling them the truth. We have to really work to distinguish between fiction and nonfiction, entertainment and facts. You know, and that's that's where I talk a lot about empathy because empathy is a capacity that allows us to see uh, the whole field, all the variables that we encounter, so we can ascertain the facts. It helps us see beyond the surface. But in the nightly news and most of the stations, you know, they're biases in different ways, and we have to we have to be a little tolerant and, and about doing some of the hard work to ascertain the facts and not assume that we've just got a tweet uh, on our computer or on our phone and it tells us what's happening in the world today because it could be vastly inaccurate.
1: Yeah, so to, and we'll, we'll be definitely talking more deeply about this in the third segment as well and dive more deeply into that, but being much more active as individual citizens. That's one side. Now, the other side that I wanna talk about next is the importance of, of language used by leaders. And you say in your book, both, both Democrats and Republicans used hateful language. You said over the last four years, particularly language used by leaders has been enormously divisive and even sadistic. They have essentially given Americans permission to hate, to lie and to demean those who consider to be their opposition. We,
2: we know at least from credible research that when leaders talk in disparaging ways, about people that they object to or ideas or theories they object to particularly if it's cruel language it filters down to the population as a whole and what it does do is it desensitizes people we have language now that we've never used in our history we you know and we don't see people crossing the aisle as we used to t- 20 30 years ago democrats stay with in, in their own little cocoon and republicans stay in theirs but we have seen this language infiltrate, even to, the, 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 even to young children, they hear it on TV. They're getting ready for school in the morning and it's on one of the news stations and it, it affects them. It makes them feel more insecure, but it has become commonplace and that's dangerous because we're not being kind to each other or even civil to each other. If someone objects to what you believe in,
1: then you attack them. That's the new mode rather than trying to understand them, we attack. Right, there's no discourse. One of the things I appreciated about your book in terms of that example is you talk about how John McCain and, and Barack Obama were able to discourse, even though they each disagreed with each other, they both outward, publicly respected each other and worked to converse and, and talk about the issues versus just simply put each other down.
2: Yeah, I, I love the example, the, 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 the actual event that took place when John McCain was running against Barack Obama and a woman came up to him and mentioned that that Barack Obama was an Arab and John McCain took the microphone away from her and, she, and he said, no, he isn't. He's a U.S. citizen. He's a decent human being. He happens to be someone who has opposite political views than I do, but we don't talk that way in America. Now, John McCain, I didn't agree with everything he believed in, but what I did believe in is he was a patriot. He crossed the aisle. John McCain had had friends on on both sides of the aisle, and we don't see that very often today.
1: Right, I've heard that from numerous sources as well, who I I regard as being informed. And then you also talk about in your book that I I believe you say that Barack Obama gave, uh, 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 sorry, I'm losing the word, uh, a speech on behalf of John McCain when he passed. He,
2: well, he John McCain picked Barack Obama
1: as one of the people to deliver his eulogy. That's the word I was looking for, yes. <laughs> Which was amazing. It is amazing, and such a testament. And, and and so why did I want to have you back on the show? One, of course, I'm a fan, and I believe in what you're doing, but I think this, this work is so timely, and it does cross over our, both of our worlds. And I do want to make the world a better place. And it does start with being able to have more civil discourse. And I love – I've never heard anybody – speak to empathy as deeply as you do Dr. Sarah McCauley and you I know you have a profound command over because of the work that you do but um, we'll talk more about that in the second segment here but before we get to that I also want to talk about what you speak on speak on in the book regarding fixed views and realistic views this is just fascinating to me and You say those in need have lost faith in government and as a result of their vulnerabilities are in a position to be easily manipulated by hateful rhetoric, blaming a fictitious enemy for all the wrongs in our society.
2: You know, at least 80% of Americans say they have no faith in Congress. 80%, that's amazing. It is amazing. Americans say they have no faith. You know, I I have a client who uh, has been a lobbyist in DC for many years. And she said, and she's at the end of her career. But she said, when she started, you know, you you would go, you would see at lunch or in dinner at DC, in DC, the Republicans and Democrats would be eating together. She said, it never happens now. It's like you can't cross the aisle even for dinner or even have lunch, even to have a discussion. It's like it's become clannish, rather than actually serving the the constituency that elected you it's become clanish you
1: can't you can't go against your tribe right right such a missing opportunity Let's grab our first break, Dr. C. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We are there with Dr. Arthur C. McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist, author of numerous books, and a student of the major religions ever seeking to increase his understanding of in-depth spiritual awakening. We've been talking a bit about this, the problem of extremism and hate speech in the United States. After the break, we're gonna talk about self-awareness and developing empathy to intervene in these issues. Stay with us, we'll be right back.
0: Now, back to Working On Purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working On Purpose. As I've watched the pandemic continue on, we've looked for ways to help companies support their employees, handling anxiety, stress, depression, feeling disconnected, while also helping to lift and inspire them with ongoing professional development. We now offer a well-being webinar learning series called Grab Your Gusto vital well-being from the inside out. You can learn more about that at EliseCortez.com or send me an email to Elise at EliseCortez.com. If you're just joining the program, my guest is Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist and author of numerous books, including his latest called America Reunited, a relational solution to bridging the political, so- social, and personal chasm dividing our nation. He joins us today from Boston. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So... As we continue talking about your book, Dr. C, in the the, the foreword is incredibly powerful, and I, I want to read it here for our listeners and our viewers. Uh, it says, as Drs. Schwartz and and Perk- stated in the in the foreword, we are in a dark time and in need of an expansive empathy to allow us to regain our civility and our sense of reason. We all need to play our part and my hope is that the following pages will provide readers with a guide to do so the stakes are very very high my cancer is treatable and so is the cancer in our country but only if we devise a treatment plan that we are all willing to implement you know at least
2: empathy is so critically important in this time because empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another it allows us to look beyond the surface we're not looking beyond the surface today. People are defined by if, if, by being labeled as Democrat or Republican, and we've never had this before in our country, where people actually use this as part of their identity. You know, in, the, in 1965, three s- percent of people were upset if someone, if one of their adult children married someone of the of the other political party. Today, it's eighty seven percent. Oh it's- my gosh which is amazing. Can you imagine coming home and saying, oh, I'm marrying a Republican or a Democrat and your family is just, they're astounded. They're so surprised. They're so upset. Because we're using it as part of our personality profile rather than realizing the facts are Democrats, indicate that Republicans are racist. It's not true. Republicans say that Democrats are socialists. It's not true. It's a very small minority in, in either party that are at the, the, those extreme and have those extreme views. The amount of hate that they think they have for each other, it's not really the majority of people. It, 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 you know, about 6% of, of, of Republicans are far right and 8% of of Democrats are progressives, and the rest, the 67%, is called the exhausted majority, the people in the middle. You
1: know? <laughs> right, right. And, and one of the other things that I found so fascinating about what you write about it, this whole notion of extremism, I thought was fascinating. When you talk about, you wonder if the pendulum motion between self absorption and narcissism, is, and then generosity and empathy, is yet another example of this extremism that we're talking about right now between the parties. Well, narcissism. We have seen narcissism grow.
2: Mm-hmm. More people are 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 behaving in narcissistic ways, and we have less empathy as a society. We know that societies that have more empathy. We know that businesses, as you know, who have more empathy and empathic environment, their profits are higher. And in in countries that are that have higher the percentages of empathy, people are healthier, live longer, are happier, and more productive. And children in schools, that would have taught to relate with, with empathy. They have higher cognitive skills, their test scores are higher. So it's not just a soft skill, It really, it really results in productive behavior. Mm-hmm. But we're not seeing much of it right now. We're seeing more self-interest, self-absorbed, and us against them you know the black and white thinking that very narrow thinking rather than more expansive thinking
1: when i think about the way you're describing this dr c what what really comes to mind is sort of a uh, like a bombastic approach you know a spitting approach to to discourse or dialogue instead of what i'm having with you and what i just had earlier on today with another very emotionally intelligent leader who knows how to use empathy, where there's clearly, there's the, the energy, the space is open for interaction, for exchange. There's a reach for understanding. It's not a peppering of this is my view on top of the other person. That's what I, I so characterize and, and catch that, it's so palpable. It, it's, it's so critically important to interact that way,
2: especially as leaders, because what we have seen in leaders in both parties, and both parties are guilty, is if they're criticized, they, they throw the kitchen sink at the other. Right. Side. Rather than trying to understand w- how come you're even saying that, what is your position, what is it that you're thinking, trying to understand where it comes from, rather than just attacking, it's really bullying behavior. It's mm-hmm. what bullies do, mm-hmm. and we see it in grown men now, grown men who are on the TV every night, and you know the the stations mm-hmm. that were that are that adhere to this have large followings. And I don't think the people that are following the individuals who tend to be more sadistic and aggressive with their language, I don't think people realize this is entertainment. It's not news, it's not fact, it's entertainment. These are entertainment shows. But they don't tell the listeners that it's entertainment.
1: Yes, and they're not grasping that in between. And so you offer something in your book, as of course, if you're prone to do, because you stand for this. You stand for helping people to understand their own prejudices, their own biases to themselves and to others. So you have a, a, a portion in the book where you talk about the way forward is to listen to the brain, you say. And you say, when we develop keen awareness, we become attentive to the moment just as you're talking about right now. We notice emotions as they occur, before they are altered by memories of the past. At that point before past conditioning takes over, emotions are a cue from which we can benefit. People can avoid a stress response by seeing what actually was taking place and by using their empathy to allow the truth to become evident.
2: Emotions are a cue, as you know. You know, they, they tell us something about the experience we're having with another human being. On the other hand, if we haven't worked out some of our old conditioning, that they can, it can interfere with emotion, that we can, start, we can react to it impulsively quickly, and that we, we, our thinking becomes more distorted. So there's a pure aspect to emotion, but there's also a biased aspect to emotion, where it, you know, if if you look like my ex-wife, I don't have an ex-wife, but if I did, and, and I may have a, an uncomfortable feeling, and now I'm 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 saying, well, boy, you know, at least seems kind of aloof. I I don't really want to work in that project with her or whatever it is. You're you, you're not using the emotion constructively, you're, because you haven't worked out things from the past. We all have biases from the past. My my career has been dedicated to helping people reduce their prejudices toward themselves and toward others. But when we do that, then we can perceive clearly, but also that our our emotions are a, a purer guide to what's happening in our world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're a, they're, they're a flag, if you will. So one of the things I want to do this with you today right now in the air, too, for our listeners and our viewers, because you do this beautifully in the book, Dr. C, is you say that in our in our culture today, there are many topics that will cause an emotional reaction and produce strong responses in people. And you say, I'm going to read the list for our, our listeners and our viewers. So pay attention now, listeners and viewers, to your emotions when I read this list. Black Lives Matter, Me Too Movement, Daca, DACA.com pro-life and pro-choice movements, LGBTQ rights, gun control, animal rights, global climate change, vaccines, white supremacy, universal health care, religious freedom, federal living wage, the Green New Deal, evolution. For a lot of people, there's a lot of juice in those things, one way or the other.
2: Yes. You know, I wrote a chapter in the book. Who would you vote for? You uh, did. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, Muhammad, Moses, or B- or Buddha? And the reason I picked those four is I knew that people would react, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 have a bias. And, but could but the, the chapter really focuses on could you ascertain the objective facts to who actually would be the best leader in in a particular situation? or would you just vote for the person that you that you were told when you when you were a young child was was the ideal figure without really ascertaining the facts we do this all the time
1: one of the many things i admire about you and respect about you dr c is that you are a student of major the major religions of the world and you appreciate them and you have something to learn from and take from all of them and i think that that's something that's really really important because in, to your point, if we are reared in one certain faith or a certain way of thinking, even about the political party or about any you know, of the religious deities, et cetera, and we haven't done our own work and our own thinking to ex- ex- examine and explore what's so for us, well, what kind of thinking is that? What kind of what kind of a citizen is that? We, I think
2: as, as adults, our responsibility is to examine our prejudices because we all have them. We have biases. We grow up with biases toward ourselves. We go up with biases toward other people, other nations, other cultures, maybe other genders, other ethnicities. But to be a person that really is going to contribute to the world, we have to examine those biases and we have to rid ourselves of them. Just like in this political climate right now where people have all these biases toward the opposite political party, we have to really ascertain the facts and find out uh, what we've been thinking. Is it actually true? Or did we hear it uh, on on a broadcast or from a particular uh, media host, and and we really never examined it. It It takes some time and work to figure out who we are and to figure out what was happening in our world. It takes time, and it takes work. And if we don't invest, then we walk around with distorted thinking all the time.
1: I was sharing this with my, my friend, Charles, this morning. We run six miles every Tuesday at six, and, and uh, I was sharing this with him, and, and I was talking with you today, and why this is such important work, that if we don't each do our own work, that we actually are contributing to the problem. We're not making the world better, we're just we're contributing to the problem. And. One of the things I appreciate too about your book is I I liked how you led us into the group therapy sessions and really helped us understand how some of that work really helps people to examine, put a mirror up, if you will, to their own biases, their own prejudices to mm-hmm. see where they came from and just are they really true and how are they working for them? Incredible work that you do.
2: You know, the highlight of my of my week is is the three groups that I've been running for many years at least. And uh, the the reason that, that I love it so much is that People come in thinking one thing or several things about themselves, and by the time they leave, they've unlearned so much. (laughs) And I think a lot of becoming a mature, reasonable person is unlearning some of the, the, the faulty things that we learned about ourselves and others. And it happens in group in a group experience because you know after people listen to you attentively for several months it's hard to deny if nine or ten people think one thing of you and you think the other you know you're going to stick to your story we're all too subjective we need objective feedback from rational reasonable people to find out who we truly are and if what we believe is true or accurate
1: yes indeed and so that's one method to be able to start to set aside as you say unlearn some of the things that that we we have accepted as truth another thing that you talk about in the book that i find incredibly compelling and i believe we talked about this in one of the other shows before is this method of deliberative polling. and I want to share this with our listeners and viewers. I think it's incredibly useful. And if we could do this more inside organizations, communities, companies, any kinds of groups, I think it would be incredible. But you describe it as a method whereby a random sample of people is brought together to discuss a particular topic or public interest topic, such as global warming, anything it could be. Materials and experts are provided to allow for factual assessment of variables involved in making decisions in small group discussions. The method has produced encouraging results. People emerged less hostile to each other, realizing that they have made conclusions that were not fact-based. This would be incredible work to do anywhere.
2: Yes, yes, And and I think it works because you're bringing in experts who are indicating what they believe that they have found in their fields. And also, you're giving material to people to read. But one of the keys, I think, is you're slowing down the process. You've got people on one side and the other side, let's say climate change, people who don't believe that it exists, people who do believe it exists. But instead of them yelling at each other or insulting each other, you have moderators that are slowing down the process. And the key to empathy is slow down, slow down and listen, empathic listening. Empathic listening means I put my own views aside for the moment and I wanna understand yours. And when that happens, in some of those meetings and deliberate polling, 70% of the uh, people changed their minds. 70% of the people
1: changed their minds about the p- person on the other side of the table. It was amazing. It is amazing. And you even say in your book, there are examples from people exiting those, uh, do- those deliberate polling groups who were vehemently opposed to each other uh, walking in and actually hugged walking out. Yes, yes. Well, because
2: you're finding the common ground and politically there is more common ground. We don't hear about it, but if you pull the populace, people who identify as Democratic or Republican, <coughs> excuse me, you see that there are far more similarities than there are differences.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The absolutely. Figureheads heads are not indicating that.
1: That's absolutely where I want to go to next after this next break, Dr. C. I'm your host. Dr. Elise Cortez. We are on the air with Dr. Arthur Sierra McCauley a licensed clinical psychologist, author of numerous books, and believer that self-care and the capacity for empathy are the keys to personal and professional success. We've been talking a bit about self-awareness and developing empathy to intervene in the issues of our times. After the break, our last session will be focused on leaders and each of us, what we can do individually as our own role to improve the situation. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Now, back to Working on Purpose.
1: Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I mentioned after the first break about the Grab Your Gusto Wellbeing web learning series. The content of that program is adapted from part one of my recently published book called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause, which is now available on Amazon. And I wrote that book to awaken awaken readers to their passion and purpose and help transform them into inspirational leaders who enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of business to all stakeholders. So that's where the content came from. If you're just joining us my guest joining us today is from boston dr arthur sir McCauley, a licensed clinical psychologist and author of numerous books including his latest called america reunited a relational solution to bridging the political social and personal chasm dividing our nation i'm your host dr Elise cortez so for this last segment here dr c i want to i want to talk about really what each of us can do individually as as our individual roles as well as what leaders can do to start to ameliorate the situation, if you will. And I want to start very deeply with your perspective and your learned views on empathy and forgiveness. Um, You talk about origins of hate is often rooted in early deprivation or abuse and result in blaming of others for what a young person could not control or alter. Would you help us understand, say more about this? I think that listeners and viewers will really be quite taken aback to really recognize just what is at the heart of this. You mentioned this in the first segment, that the person Hitting with the baton is, is actually not, it's not about politics. So, what are we, what are we looking at here?
2: Mm-hmm. It, it, it's always fascinated me, at least, that you, you, people that grow up in very, very difficult circumstances. One person will be that person with the baton hitting the innocent police officer, and another person has worked out their difficulties, forgiven the people that have hurt them because they've used empathy to understand. They understand their circumstances. And one of the things that comes with empathy is that you realize that most of the time people gave, give you what, what they can. They give you the, to the extent of ability they have. So you may have not been treated very well, but it, it isn't necessarily because that's an evil person who wanted to intentionally hurt you. Maybe this person, maybe your parents or coaches or whoever it is that, may have uh, even abused you or treated you inappropriately, it's coming to understand who they are, not necessarily approving of any of their behavior. You don't have to approve to forgive but to move on, <clears throat> you have to understand where people are coming from and that it, it wasn't it, it wasn't as personal as you may have felt as a child. So some people overcome, they they go into therapy they go into some of the groups that we just talked about they they talk to friends they open up it's it's not something you can keep to yourself and work out you need objective feedback from other people but some people develop the hate that we've seen recently and they hold on to it tightly and they want to abuse other people to kind of correct the abuse that they experience and what they're doing is they're putting old faces on new faces they don't even, that person who was hitting the, the police officer with the, I mean, he doesn't even know that person. So that person, he's he's making up for what was done to him by doing it to some, an innocent person who has nothing to do with him. And and that's how misdirected it can be. <clears throat> but there, there are ways of resolving these kind of difficulties.
1: There are ways of overcoming trauma. And people yeah. do. And it, so, one two things I got from that, Doctor C. One is that I, I really got so present that what you know, when we see these these people with these tremendously hateful speech and these hateful actions, um, really what we're seeing—if you tell me if I'm wrong about this—is this is a person literally on stage and raw of their own experience, their own wounds.
2: They are they are projecting out the self hatred they have onto someone else. Mm-hmm. They are. Yeah. Really their childhood, they're returning to the scene of the crime and reliving it on innocent people mm-hmm. and it speaks to a deep sense of inadequacy and insecurity people who are aggressive, people who are sadistic are never happy people they're miserable because they always have an enemy there's always somebody that they're complaining about somebody that they want to get even with and how can you feel at ease within yourself or have any sense of serenity when you're always trying to fight with someone Mm-hmm. And it speaks to insecurity. And I think it's very important that we know that when you see leaders talking that way, it, they're, they're
1: sharing with you their inadequacy. Yes. That's exactly what I wanted to showcase, Dr. C., just because that is when people really understand that that's what that is, now they really have, I hope, the capacity to start to look and use empathy. And, and you say it because you say your own hurt gets in the way of being a whole empathetic person. And so if we can recognize that's what's really going on here, I think we can start to separate the wheat from the chaff.
2: We have to not idealize sadistic leaders. We have to look up to leaders who lead with integrity, authenticity, and empathy. What I call the soulful leaders. Because these are the people that people want to be around and want to be around and learn from. And they, they establish an environment where it's very high spirited. The other environment is one of fear. They lead through aggression and fear. They're always threatening people. And then some people take that on as thinking, oh, how strong that person is. It is not strength at all. It is, as I said a few minutes ago, it's, it's the depths of inadequacy.
1: I entirely understand that and I really wanted to make sure that you speak to that and you did that beautifully. And then now I want to go on to this whole notion of, and you started to say this in the last segment I think, but the divide you say is actually driven less by the adherence to the positions held by each party, but more by the hate they have cultivated for each other. And that they both overestimate how much members of the other party dislike them and then they also overestimate the degree to which, uh, with those that Sorry, they disagree over the the degree to which uh, they disagree on central issues, and they agree on certain others. And so, would you speak a bit about to this whole notion of, or back on the leadership front here, of what's happening between these parties that continues to fuel this extremism and this hate? Well,
2: both sides are guilty of dehumanizing each other, and I think that it it, it is a select view at the top that influence people going down going down the ladder uh, in, in, in particular parties. We as Americans have to, have to vote for people that cross the aisle. We have to start, we have to demand that people cross the aisle. We can no longer just vote our party. You know, voting your party to, in today's world means that you, you have to eliminate 50% of other people's views. We need people across the aisle. We need people who serve the, the citizens and voted them into office, not people that just go along with whatever party they belong to. That's that's
1: what we have too much of. Agreed. And as you say in your book, I do the same thing. You say you tend not to necessarily vote per by a party line, but what for whatever person represents what you what you what you tend to align with or can support. Am I right about that? Did I get that right? Yeah, I mean, I, t- I tend to vote for the person, not the party. The person of the party, yes. Yeah. Yes, me too. I wanted to make sure I, I got that accurate. I wanted to make sure that, that, that I didn't say anything that was erroneous on your, on your behalf. Um, so and then w- let's go back to what, what you and I said in the first segment here, is that we need to do our jobs as citizens, as individual citizens. And you say we've become accustomed to terms like alternative facts, fake news, the far right, the far left, all terms that indicate bias in choosing a side. And so, again, this is where we get into this notion of, of what are what, what are we watching? Are we watching entertainment or what are we watching here? And then you also, and this is actually really important, you also say then that as a result, there's a tendency to lose faith in all news, in all authorities. And as New York Times columnist Matt Bai points out, if we lose faith in being able to determine the difference between entertainment and reality, between fiction and nonfiction, we will further accentuate a world built on marketeers and media. Yes. And, and I mean, his comments are, 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 are
2: very poignant and very, very important because again, we, when you're watching news, and nightly news in particular, on the different stations, you have, to, you have to separate what is entertainment versus what is facts. And when people are talking with great intensity and great passion, with very degrading, dehumanizing language, don't trust them don't trust them, because the likelihood that that person is giving you an accurate depiction of what's happening in our world is very low, if at if, if all existed. Because there's no reason to talk that way. There's no reason to dehumanize other people. That's a person who has an agenda. And always be careful to not take in people that have an agenda and are trying to get you to come on board and start to talk and act in the same way.
1: One of the things that you also point out in the book, which I, I certainly subscribe to and, and do my best to adhere to, is you talk about the importance of, of, of getting your news from different outlets by intentionally making sure that you are, you are not just receiving from your usual posts, but doing your homework and, and trying to get a, a variety of voices and perspectives in the mix.
2: Some of the studies that I cite in the book Elise, the people that watch the same news programs every evening have the highest rate of distorted thinking. Yes. Because they're listening to the same commentators over and over again. But always remember, pay attention to the language. I know I'm repeating myself, but it's so critically important. When the language becomes disparaging, don't trust that the, the information you're receiving.
1: So what I certainly want to emphasize here on this show and again one of the many reasons I wanted to have you on again is is I, I, I am asking, what what do I stand for? Is I am like you in many ways. I am standing to try to help elevate the world, help elevate our consciousness, our our own Ah, positive impact in the world. Our own, our own ability to make a difference through, with our one precious life. And so, what I'm asking uh, you, readers, or excuse me, listeners and viewers, is to do more of your homework. To step up on a bigger, on a bigger fashion, and how it is that you consume and and evaluate news. Right, that's what we're doing here. So, I really wanted to make sure we got that point across.
2: Uh, I think you're, you know, you're encouraging listeners to do their homework about your own background. Uh, and also to not just accept at face value what you hear, but also examine the personality of the person who's who's giving the information, because that's critically important.
1: It is. It is. And and as we get closer to the end here of our of our time together, you I want to say what you have, which I think is a perfect way to to finish. And then I want you to close with your own thoughts. But. You say, ultimately, one must choose tolerance of diverse ideas rather than a narrow-minded dogmatic view. If one will open his heart and become more vulnerable while acknowledging and resolving the hurts of his life that have remained unhealed, the heart will soften and anger will dissipate. The world will expand as one's range of friendships resulting in a high-spirited, happy life. We, We are a diverse nation. That's where we are
2: today. We are a diverse nation and diversity allows us to learn from people that think differently than we do, have a different perspective than we do, may have grown up in a different culture than we are. It makes the world exciting. Rather than shutting down diversity, which we've, what we've seen when we close the door and we have, we have the other side is the enemy, open the door be be exposed to different points of view you don't have to take them all in but at least this is an opportunity to learn we've learned from people that have had different experiences than we've had if you just stay in your little group you become very very narrow-minded and small-minded
1: mm-hmm. agreed so you you know how i how i do my show i i I read your book from cover to cover i i take voracious notes and and i really create the 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 conversation around what i think is important based on what i've already had on the show and and what i'm trying to put forth and curate into the world so we have a few more minutes here dr c so what else would you like to make sure that our listeners understand learn hear from you i think probably
2: one of the most important things is that we we need every single human being that lives in this country to make an effort. We need to make an effort. We need to slow down. We need to listen empathically. We need to expand our empathy and try to understand people that seem different from us. You know, people make discriminatory remarks or or make judgment just on the way people look now. We know that from credible studies as well. Open the door. Don't assume that you know the other person, and examine some of the biases that you've had toward yourself, and in the, the world that you the, that you heard early on in life as well. We we have to do that, but we have to do it now, and we have to demand more from the people that lead our our communities, our states, and our country.
1: One of the things I want to make sure that our listeners and viewers really get from you that I I would wager about that, most people don't understand. And, and because I think there's a lot of talk these days about um, emotional intelligence and empathy. But what I don't think people really, really understand is that empathy is is a remarkable tool, as you say, to slow down, which allows you then to get a hold of those emotions mm-hmm. and understand what they're trying to tell you before you just simply react from them. So that whole notion of you just said it, to be able to slow down. Why is it that empathy allows us to slow down?
2: When we give and receive empathy, we produce the hormone oxytocin, which is the love hormone, the connecting hormone. It makes people feel safe. It makes people feel secure. It makes you feel closer to the other individual. So it's actually we're, we're, we're creating a brain change. So when you give and receive empathy, why is it that in those deliberate polling uh, groups that people change their minds? Because they were having empathic interchange with each other. They started to feel, rather than feel prejudice toward the other person, they were feeling safe with the other person. You can't do that if you don't slow down and listen. You know, the old adage of, we got two ears and one mouth God gave us, you know, that we, we should listen twice as much as we talk. Ask yourself, do you talk more in an interaction or do you listen more? You listen more, you learn more.
1: And and yes, and there is a reason that I keep hosting this radio show, as you as you know, because I do learn so much from people who who help me expand my thinking, my understanding of the world, my place in it. And 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 it's and, and sometimes I don't necessarily agree with what they have to say or their perspective. And so learning and hearing where it comes from helps me understand and expand my person in the world. And that's what I want to do. And I want to help others do the same. So I really appreciate you coming back and joining us for a fourth time, Dr. C. And um, it's just every time I talk with you, I feel like the world somehow gets a little bit bigger. So thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you very much, Elisa. Uh, you, you, you know, you you are the host who really reads a book. <laughs> <laughs> I and am told so, that frequently. Uh, I always look at your notes, and I feel like, oh my God! You know, I mean, you 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 do your homework because you are a curious person, and I think you're a lifelong learner. So I appreciate that very much.
1: I am, and I thank you to get to learn from you. Listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about Dr. Arthur Sear McCauley, his work or his books, maybe you could start just by going to balanceyoursuccess.com. Is that the best place, Dr. Seed? Well, the, the new book is on Amazon. That's probably the quickest way to to, uh, to to read a
2: summary of it or to obtain it if you'd like to.
1: Okay. And thanks again for our partnering sponsor, WorkProud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback and thanks for their work from people across your company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a re- recorded podcast. We were on the air with Joyce Tom of Energy at Work, talking about the work she does, helping leaders and organizations to build the resilience, agility, and energy necessary to fuel ongoing business and personal growth. Next week, we'll be on the air with Sean Harvey, a Chief Compassion Officer and Masculinity Guide at Symphonia Men's Study. We'll be talking about his work addressing the emerging narrative around the next frontier of men's healing and transformation work, demystifying gender at work to navigate the shifting gender rules and roles, and integrating compassion into masculine systems and cultures. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our lives, so let's work on purpose.